So I don't know what's up with the weather. Definitely is not the temperature, right? I got up there I, yesterday. I was getting ready to to lay my clothes out. I'm like, I'm wearing a sweater tomorrow. Hey, you know, I was, I really, honestly, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of words that we use to describe weather or the extremes thereof. You know, growing up, you know, we, we'd be like right there at the, the, the beginning of the year and it would get warm and, and my granny always had these terms that she used to describe some of that like, uh, like dogwood winter. Uh, back a few, actually, I guess we're still in blackberry winter. Because, uh, you know, we're in third spring, uh, if, you, if you get the drift. And it's like, you know, it just kind of, ebb, it, it, it kind of goes back and forth. It, forth. it ebbs and it flows. But my grandmother had a lot of those kind of superstitions and labels. I think she got them out of the farmer's almanac. A lot of you guys, maybe your grandparents have, would probably still get one. But you use that because it's kind of like common sense to what we're observing in, in, the, in the climate. So we know when to plant certain things and when to do this. In fact, my granny would send me to the persimmon tree that grew in my yard. Um, that persimmon tree is still there. And she would ask me to get a seed out of one of the berries. And then she would kind of cut it in half and lay it open and say, yep, it's going to be a wet, cold winter. I'm like, how do you know that? <laughs> and if you look inside the persimmon tree, persimmon seed there would be a little sapling starting to form and she would say if it looked like a spoon or a fork or a knife that determined what the winter was going to be like or like you know so right in a few months after after summer's over we'll see these little woolly caterpillars coming out and granny would say yep i mean just gonna be hot I'm... but i mean they had made observation over many many years and, and the reason we call black they call it blackberry winter is because we have a cold snap usually that hits about the time blackberries begin to bloom that's why it's called that and so it does it I mean people have used these signs of the times to determine a whole lot of different things they do with agriculture but one that I've often used is the dog days of summer and you're all sitting here thinking well I know why they call it dog days well right now we're in third winter but in about two weeks it's probably going to be the fifth level of Hades because it's going to be so hot Humidity starts creeping in, and I mean, you think by the time we get to July, you want to be like just an old hound dog and go lay up under some porch and wallow in the mud. It's so hot. But honestly, that's not where the word dog days comes from. Some think it's a reference to the heat. Some think it's so hot in the summer that it's not even fit for a dog, and we've used these phrases. But actually, that time frame, which is about early July to August, goes all the way back to the Roman times. Did you know that? The word dog days originates from when the Romans would describe the hottest days of summer. They used the word dies caniculares. It's kind of hard to roll off the tongue. What it literally means is days of the dog. Now you're going, okay, well, they probably watched their dogs wallow up under a porch and lay in the mud too. No, that's not what it is. They noticed that in the sky there was a star that would appear in the summer. We call that star Sirius. No, I'm serious. It's called Sirius. And they believed, and it's part of a constellation called the Big Dog. In fact, that Big Dog was, was the pet of the hunter that we often see in the sky named Orion. They're kind of close together. 
but the serious star would appear in the evening and in the morning, and they thought it gave extra heat to the earth, and so they called it the days of the dog. Let's pray. No, that's not it. That's not the end of it. But it's just interesting that this phenomena, this phenomenon that we call dog days has been coming around. It's been around a long time. You know, the truth is it gets hot in the summer. And if you grew up like I did, my grandmother lived in front of me, the same one that sent me after persimmon seeds and chased woolly caterpillars. When it was summertime, we had to hoe the garden. And we didn't have these nice bean runners that, that people have nowadays. Granny planted the beans, and this is how you picked beans. In the middle of the day, in the heat. That's called pressure. That's it takes endurance. Say endurance. It takes endurance to do something like that because unless you've got an end in mind, which is my belly, you're not going to sit down there and pick those beans in the middle of summer to eat. And that leads way to a term that I want us to focus on. We're going to start this series, and we're going to talk a lot about the word perseverance. Say perseverance. And perseverance is the continued effort to do or achieve something despite how difficult the amount of failure or opposition to that. The etymology of this word comes from this, this idea, like you know you have per capita. It's per severe. Severe is something that's hard. It's weighty. It works against you. And so perseverance is this attitude, this commitment, that no matter how hard the task is, no matter how long it takes, I'm going to hang in there. I'm going to persist. I'm going to draw deep from my well and keep going no matter what. So it means to press into something that sometimes is very bad. Ladies and gentlemen, we're in short supply of perseverance today. Josiah prayed that I would stay focused, and I have to confess, I did sit, sit and think a little bit about food today. <laughs> but I think I can make it to 1 o'clock and eat, right? Have you ever fasted before? You know why fasting's hard? Because it takes perseverance. You ever wanted to lose weight? Sometimes you just want to give up, right? You get in there, you maybe lose those five pounds pretty quick, but you got to lose 15, and you get to 10, and you're like, I give up, I'm going to get some chocolate ice cream. It takes perseverance, and we're in short supply of it today. In fact, when we look at our culture, Scott Ball and Matthew, uh, A.J. Matthew drew the following conclusion when he was talking about how we have this rise in feminism among young men. And he draws, they draw a conclusion to a lack of perseverance. They say this, 21st century manhood in the West has become infected by becoming feminine, but not in a way that many would describe it. Describe it. He says, by this, I don't mean that they cry in a movie or wear a pink tie. That's not what he's talking about. He says, as defined by St. Thomas Aquinas, as a vice, listen, as a vice that is opposite of perseverance. What they're saying basically is this is young men aren't being young men because they give up. They throw it in too quickly. He states that this situation is when someone is, quote, ready to forsake a good on account of difficulties which he cannot endure. Look at our world today. You go to a restaurant, 
And I've seen people pitch a fit because they got to wait 30 minutes to get a table because they can't persevere. I'm sorry if that offends, if that labels anybody in this room. Forgive me. Well, just wait. <laughs> it's all right. Or you're sitting at a red light. The red light, tur- the red light turns green, and you're sitting there for a total of five seconds, and somebody's already honking at you. We live in a day when, as he said, we lack inner strength to do hard things. Ladies and gentlemen, we're in the last days. We're in the dog days of eternity. And we need perseverance. The goal is almost there. Jesus is about to come back, and we're sitting back in the luxury, in the luxury of our blessing And we're not striving toward the prize. We have forgotten what the end result is. In fact, I was amazed to see in an article recently by Carrie Newhoff talking about why people have stopped coming to church. Do you know one of the the, the main reasons why people have stopped coming to church? Affluence. You don't know what the word affluence means? They They got money now. And everything else after that Depends on how affluent our society is. In fact, he suggested that there's research to show that the middle class is shrinking, but it's not becoming more poor. And in our blessing, we're sitting back, and when obstacles come against us, we don't even push into it. We buy our way out of it. And I don't know any other book in the Bible that speaks more to perseverance than the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, what we're going to find is the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who the author was. Some have suggested Paul because the style of chapter 13 looks a lot like the way Paul wrote, but the rest of the book doesn't. Some have suggested Apollos or Timothy, lots of different names, but the truth is the text does not reveal who wrote the book. But what we do know according to chapter 2 is that they saw Jesus. They were an eyewitness. So therefore it makes it an authoritative book, one of the reasons it makes it an authoritative book. And he's writing to dispersed Jewish people who are under persecution. They are giving, they want to give in, throw in the towel, and go right back to Judaism. But unfortunately, there's something that happens in time, in 70 AD, that really messes up the Middle East a little bit, especially the early church. Rome destroys Jerusalem. They tear down the temple. The centerpiece of Jewish worship was the ability to sacrifice. And I was thinking about this the other day, that when you and I do something to offend our God, all other religions either pay penance of some kind, or or they sacrifice, or they do good works to cover it up. Christianity is different because our penance was on the cross. We don't bring something to God to cover up our sin. We can't. But Christ came to this earth and died for us to take our sin away. He atoned for it. It's covered. And so we bring the sacrifice of praise and dedication and following to our Lord because of what he did for us. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't forget this. I know it's hard. In fact, I hold, this is just me, I hold that the book of Hebrews was written sometime in the 60 A.D. range. There's no mention in Hebrews of the destruction of the temple, but we know that something had happened, 
or something was happening that led up to that. But there was something that did happen, and that was Nero. Nero becomes Caesar sometime around 58 A.D., and he committed suicide sometime in late 60s A.D., but he was a tyrant. I mean, he was so bad. His reputation was so bad that Bugs Bunny had an episode with Nero in it. He was trying to feed him to the lions. That's how bad he was. He murdered his own family members. And under his reign, we believe that both Peter and Paul lost their lives. So now you're an early Christian, a Christian in the early church, and these things are going on around you. What would you want to do? It's easy for us to sit in this room and say, no, I'd never throw in the towel. Well, Peter said he'd never die Jesus, and he did. We need perseverance. We need biblical perseverance that will point us to what's to come. And so what we're going to see in this book are five warning statements. Say the number five. Five. How many? Five. There's five warning statements that this, that this writer is going to exhort his readers to, to read. But then he's going to teach them, interspersed with this, that Jesus is superior to everything. That he's the better man, he's better than angels, he's better than Moses. He's the better priest. In fact, he's the better high priest. He brings about a better covenant and he's a better promise. Why? Because Jesus is superior. And so I'm telling you, I have waited months to do this series. Why? Because I'm going to go ahead and I'll say it now, I'll say it again. We are Ebenezer. We are a place of hope. We are a people of hope. And as a people of hope, we pursue God. And we pursue God in our worship. We worship this God-man named Jesus Christ who did so much for us, and he is worthy of our praise. So I want you to turn to the first chapter of Hebrews. And I want to read just the first four verses to get us started in this book. In a few minutes, I am gonna, I'm going to jump around to some other places in the Bible, but it's in your study guide. So just let me read those passages to you, and you can go back and look at them later. But I want you to stand with me, and let's read through these first four verses. If you're online, join us. We're so glad you're here. If you're joining us, go ahead, let's look at that. It says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. If you mark your Bible, I would mark the word nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. You know what that means, guys? We're standing here right now because Jesus wills it. And he said, when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, as we take the next few moments to look at your word, God, would you, would you just all strike us like never before that we would be so overwhelmed by the majesty and the grace of in the truth of who you are, that it would motivate us that no matter how hard it gets, that we'll hang in there. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to share, to start with, a story of Jesus. It's, it's found in Matthew 22. 
Now, this is happening just, just a little bit of time after Jesus has entered in to Jerusalem during Passion Week. And unfortunately, you, you know, you'd love to hear some cool stories about Jesus and some of the things he did and some good interactions, but unfortunately, the religious elite of Israel was out to get him. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, were every turn he went, they were trying to pin him with something and to stick him with something, and they would ask really sometimes some, some dumb questions, like the Sadducees asking him about divorce when they didn't even, uh, and, and resurrection when they didn't even believe about resurrection. They're just trying to trap him. So I love this passage because of the last verse. I want you to listen to this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees because it makes this point, the first point in your outline. As a man, Jesus is more than mortal. Jesus is more than mortal. So it says in verse 41 of Matthew 22, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, so how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, quotation, Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies beneath your feet. So I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, who's supposed to be David's son, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, and nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. I mean, have you ever seen a good debate on TV? I mean, I'm talking about a good debate, not like mudslinging, but a good debate where one of the participants says something back that the other person just can't, can't reply, can't answer. And that's what's happening in this text. Jesus asks them, explain this to me. How is it that if the Messiah is supposed to be the son of David, that David calls him Lord? Well, it's simple. Because he's more than mortal. God had promised David that there would come someone that would never cease to be on his throne. They called him the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Greek word there is Christos, it's Christ. Some, I mean, for, for kids and maybe some of you younger, younger teenagers, you may not know, Christ is not his last name, it's his title. He's, he's Jesus Christ, he's the, the one anointed to be the king. And so as, as he's putting this question back on them, we see two things. Number one, no matter what scholarship may suggest, Jesus said David wrote Psalm 110. Jesus said that he wrote Psalm 10. There's no question about that. And the Lord here in question couldn't be Solomon. In other words, scholars have suggested that when you read Psalm 110, when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, that he was writing this to his son Solomon. Well, that can't be. Because Solomon was not a priest, as we will see when we get to Psalm 110. It cannot be Solomon. So here, here's, here's the thing. Whose son the question that Jesus asked, whose son is Jesus? Whose son is he? Well, he's the son of Mary. There's a lot of things that we debate about in church. And there's some things that you die for. I will die for the immaculate conception of Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin Mary. Joseph was not his 
biological father. When we look in the scripture, we see in Matthew chapter 1 that the angel told Joseph, his earthly father, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. He's more than mortal. And then John said about him in a verse that we all know, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only So whose son is he other than Mary's? He's God's son. Then we look down at Mark 3.11. I mean, listen to this. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, get away. No, they said, you are the son of God. I mean, out of all the things a demon could say, the first thing he says, you are the son of God. Even those who didn't follow Jesus acknowledged that he was more than mortal. John wrote in his gospel at the end when he gives us the purpose statement of his book, but these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you can have life. Or keep going on. I love this one. you got to hear this one. In Acts 7, 56, as Stephen was passing away from being stoned, he says, he says Behold, the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man is standing. Jesus had ascended to heaven and was sitting at the right hand of God, but at that moment he was standing. Talk about Memorial Day. Jesus at that moment, Jesus as the priest who had completed his work, atoned for sin, all that had been done usually was sitting, making intercession, but at that moment he was standing. You know why? Because he's more than mortal. He's more than mortal. Paul challenges us in Galatians 2.20 that we've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer us that live, but Christ who lives in me and the life we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God. Peter recalls Jesus' baptism saying this, for when we received, when, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Whose son is he? And then lastly, John would then in 1 John say this, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God and the Pharisees failed to see it accept it, acknowledge it. They declined it. They ignored it. But it did not matter because he was the king of the universe and was standing in their presence and they stood there in absolute ignorance. Kind of likens to the movie The Man in the Iron Mask, the 1998 American depiction of the drama written by Alexander Dumas. If you haven't figured it out, I love Alexander Dumas. I'm reading The Three Musketeers right now. He's one of my favorite authors. But in this movie, if you remember the movie, King Louis XIV was, was just basically a tyrant just like Nero. He, he wasted money on lavish living and in all these proxy wars to the point that it was crippling France. And the three musketeers set out to make things different because they had heard that there was someone else, that in fact, Louis had a brother named Philip who was locked in a dungeon he was the twin brother that was kind of stolen away 
at birth. So no one thought that, no one knew he existed, and the queen thought he was dead. He was locked in a prison in an iron mask, hidden away for fear. Fear of what? Fear of his authority and his power. And so what happens in the movie is they end up switching them. And Philip becomes king. And under his rule, his righteous rule, France reaches and achieves prosperity again. They See, they didn't acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. But it did, and it, but it did not change who he was and what, he had done, what he's done. Now, I don't know if you're in this room today and wrestling with your faith. I don't know if you came in this room today and maybe you're joining us online. And you're sitting here with this question, who is Jesus Christ? I'm here to tell you he's more than man. This Jesus Christ died so that you could have life. And we don't just deny him with our words. We deny him in our actions. He's more than just your friend. He's the king of the universe. And he's standing here with a righteous invitation to you and to me to accept him and to follow him. So for you, for you today... If you settled the question in your own heart and mind, who is this Jesus? Who is, his son? who is he the son of? He's the son of God. And he stands here extending grace to you. But you know what? Since he's more than, more than man, that means he must be something else. He's God. Second point, as God, Jesus is divine. No one in this room is divine. Against all new age thinking, you do not become little gods. Against some of, the, some of the springing forth and outwards from Christianity, we don't become little bitty Jesuses. We are not God. You will never be God. You will not become a God. There is only one God. His name is Yahweh, according to the Old Testament. He is the Father, He is the Son, and He is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ, as that Son, is divine. So let me read to you Psalm 110. One of my favorite psalms. It's one of the most quoted test, uh, passages in the New Testament. It's Psalm 110.1. It is alluded to, it is quoted over and over again. So let me read it, and I want to make sure I give you some words as I do this. The Lord Yahweh, if you ever see, young kids, if, you're, if, you, if your Bible's open and you see the word LORD in the Old Testament in all capital letters, that means Yahweh, Jehovah. When it's like the next word where it's just capital L and all the rest is lowercase, that is Adonai. Say Adonai. It just flows off the tongue, right? Sit at my right hand. Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Whoever this LORD is, he is sovereign. The Lord will stretch forth your scepter from Zion or Jerusalem, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. That implies that he will conquer his enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Why? Because he's such a good king. They'll do it for free. In your holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. That's strength. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So not only is he Lord, not only is he king, he's a priest. And he says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek appears for two verses in Genesis 14. And he blesses Abraham, but he's, 
called Melchizedek, the high priest of God, the king of Salem. That's where we get this idea. Maybe you've heard the phrase prophet, priest, and king. A label that we use for Jesus. Guess where it's found? Psalm 110. So he goes on to say, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter, whose right hand? God the Father. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. That doesn't sound much like a peacekeeping king to me. He says, he will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses, and he will shatter the chief men over a broad country. Now, if that doesn't exude power and domination, I don't know anything else that will, but this is describing Adonai. And he wraps it up by saying, he will drink from the brook by the wayside, and therefore he will lift up his head. No need of shame. The Lord said to my Lord. Jesus stumped him with the question, because how could David call this descendant, Adonai, because he's more than man, because he's God. There's four ideas I want to point out to you from Psalm 110. This work that he's done is accomplished. As a priest, a priest was constantly moving. A priest was constantly working. But Jesus did all the work on the cross. Therefore, when he went to heaven, he sat down. Because he no longer has to do that work. It's completely completed. According to verses 2 and 3, he's the sovereign ruler of the earth. God has made him that way, appointed him that way. Why? Because Jesus, as God, has always existed. He was not created. When he became flesh, that was not creation. He just put on new clothes. In verse 4, we see this role of a mediator and an intercessor. Not like Aaron or his children, or the Levites, he preceded those. In other words, now you see this disconnect from, from the Judaic order because the priests in, in, in the Judaic order were from Aaron and his, and his descendants from the tribe of Levi. Jesus came before that because Jesus came before Melchizedek because his order, his priestly order, is forever. And his title is that of judge and executioner. That's why when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, we see this image of Jesus on a, on a, on a horse, high and mighty, and on his thighs written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because he is over all. He is better than all. He is superior. And that's the message that we hear, that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard quality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and put on human flesh, taking on the form of a bondservant, being in the likeness of man. There's nothing on this earth that we can contrast and compare to understand this God-man in one person. Distinct, but yet one. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is in authority. That's why when in Hebrews 1.5 we will read this, For which of his angels did he ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, when he's quoting uh, this, this, this promise he made to David, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Jesus, God's only son, the divine, Jesus quoted this psalm to show that he alone 
was that promised Messiah. But why is that important? Why does it matter that Jesus right now is sitting at the right hand of God? Well, number one, he's not here. Jesus is not here. If Jesus were here, things will be changing. God is sovereign over evil, and he will repay. Jesus is sitting at the right hand until his enemies are subdued. We don't like talking about that part of Christ, but it is true. The next time Jesus comes back, he won't be lowly in a manger. He will be the conquering king. And this is very important for you and your growth in faith. Jesus right now is praying for you. He is mediating for you. And that, to me, that's one of the things about why we need to make sure we know what the gospel says. If you've got a wrong gospel, your discipleship is messed up. Jesus is at the right hand of the God, at the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. I mean, it's nice to say Jesus lives in my heart, but he's not there. He's at the right hand of God, and the Holy Spirit is inside of us. The Holy Spirit is what reveals Christ. The Holy Spirit is what empowers you. You need the Holy Spirit because without its marking, you're not a Christian. That's God's saving work in your life. And there is no earthly initiation. This wasn't just something dreamed up. This is God's order. And God is the ultimate judge, and he will repay all, all sin. So today, we, we sit here and we think about this. This is us today. If we want to find a way to persevere, we need to keep in mind who's in charge. If we want to persevere and hang in there when the going gets tough, we need to remember who's got it in his control. When everything is crashing in around you, when it seems like it's, it's time to give it up, it's time to throw in the towel, remember that Jesus is the Lord. He is the king. He is sovereign over all things, and he will get you through it. He will lift up your head. That last point, that last point, as the word of God, Jesus is superior. John 1 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He still is. When you look back at this text that we, that we read at the beginning, there's 11 things I want to read off kind of quickly. Number one, the Word of God is timeless. He said, After He spoke long ago, now He speaks to us through His Son. The message hasn't changed because Jesus hasn't changed. Jesus is the culminated revelation of God he said he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and that word nature is the word we get hypostatic now some of you're going to go like oh you're going to cross your eyes hypostatic is the word that that the early church began to use to describe the two natures of Christ in one his divine nature, and his human nature. They didn't like mix and become like, like if I took black sand and white sand and mixed it together, it was just kind of like my gray sand. It's not that. He, was, he, he, he kept his divine intact, his human intact, but in one person. And the only thing that I could compare that to is that God is one God in three persons. And it's kind of hard for us to wrap our head around it because even if you try to pull a St. Patrick and start talking about shamrocks and the Trinity, it's still messed up. It doesn't represent it. You get modalism out of that. You're like, well, what's modalism? That's this view that God appears as the Father, sucks back into the gunk, 
son who sucks back in. That's not what we believe. We believe Jesus is a distinct person and that in his distinct personhood, he is divine and he is human. And so in the early church, they actually had a meeting and came up with this creed where they talked about how Jesus is divine and human natures exist in such a way that they are united in one person but unblended. And that's where this word nature comes from. And it says he upholds all things by the word of his power. Guys, God is still active in his creation. The only barrier between us and God is a three-letter word called sin. And Jesus made a way for our sin to be taken away away from so that we could have that bridge and have that relationship with God. And then he goes on down to say when he had made purification of sin, which these Jewish people reading this would understand, there was a sacrifice made to purify them, take their sin away. He sat down because he finished the work. And because of that, he is much better than angels. Well, angels were brought into this because angels were messengers. And the message that Jesus brought that the Pharisees would not listen to and adhere to was better than anything the angels ever said. Why? He's more than mortal. He's divine. He's superior. That's our Jesus. And so today, we stand in awe. We stand in wonder as we look upon Christ, the Son of the living God, who spoke all things into being, who left heaven to come to earth, who put on human flesh, who lived a sinless life, who willingly died on the cross to pay our sin debt, who was raised back to life and is alive today, who is sitting at the right hand of God making intercession. Why? Because he is the God-man who is high, he's mighty, he's lifted up, he has the name that's above every name, and he deserves our allegiance and our worship. He's the one that will get you through the times. Listen, you don't know where your faith is until it's tested. You can say you believe, but until you go through a trial by fire, you don't know where your faith stands. And God will let you go through those trials so you can see where your faith is. God knows where your faith is. He knows if you have this much or this much. You need that trial. You need that hardship so you can see where you stand with God. Not, or, not to prove to God where you stand. He already knows. And so we're going to spend the next nine weeks digging into this book. And I'm going to challenge you to do a couple of things. In just a minute, Josiah's going to come up, and he's going to lead us in a verse and chorus, and it's to worship. That's our application today, is to stand here awestruck in the person of who Jesus is. But I've given you two tools. That does not roll off the tongue. Two tools. On your study guide, you will see a reading schedule. I want to challenge you over the next nine weeks to read through the book of Hebrews. Back when we did 1 John, I challenged you then, I'll challenge you again. If you don't journal, if you don't take notes, if you don't have a method where you can sit down and take and open up a piece of paper and make some observations on what you're reading and then interpret what it's saying and then take those truths and apply it, that's basic Bible study. But see, we want you to study this. We want you to know this. And so in addition to that, in addition to reading, where did my phone go? Here it is. For those of you that are on our Church Center app, it's called the Church Center app. If you have a smartphone, Android or iPhone, you need to be on the Church Center app. You find our church. When you do now, though, when you open this up, it's got to look at me and get my face ID. When you open up the app, at the top of the page is is our banner for this series. But now there's a tab at the bottom called Discussion. If you click on on the Discussion tab, 
it'll open up the series that we're in. You've got to click it about two or three different times. But eventually, you will get to a page with discussion questions for you. I want to challenge you that through this series that you use the app and that you read the passage assigned and you work through the discussion questions. You can do that by yourself, which is not, not the one I want to propose. What I want to propose, families, sit down at the table one day a week and do this. Find two or three guys that go down to McDonald's and instead of gossiping about politics, gossip about Hebrews. Life group leaders, if you need something to study for the summer, there it is. Find a group and do this together. Ten weeks. We're talking about perseverance, right? We're just talking ten weeks. But work through that. Because here's the thing. If you'll read what we've asked you to read and work through these questions, you'll be able to preach the message next Sunday. Because these questions are about next week's message. Not today's. Next week's. You're going to read the first warning statement and work through some questions. This is like Bible study for those of us that may not know how to do Bible study. Now, some of these questions may be a little harder. If you're working with kids, you may have to rephrase them. But you know what? That's okay. Your kids need to see you wrestling with the Word. And if nothing else, your kids need to hear you reading the Word. Maybe some of your grandparents, your kids, grandkids are visiting for the summer. Sit them around that table. Crack open the book of Hebrews and read it with them. Use it as an opportunity to teach. And listen, I'm making it available. If you say, you know what? I really just don't know how to study the Bible. You call the church office. And you set up an appointment with one of us, with Fred, with Crosby, with me, with anybody, and let us help you learn some basic study skills. There's no shame in that. We want you to grow in your faith, and we grow as we engage the Word. Remember, we said we're a people of hope. We're a place of hope. We're Ebenezer. And as Ebenezer, we pursue God. And we do that in our worship. So I want to invite you to stand with me as we sing this last chorus. We're down here if you need to come pray, if you need some counsel. But right now what I want us to do is just focus, focus on who Christ is. He is superior. He's more than man. He's more than man. He's divine because he's ruler over all. Father, in Jesus' name, receive our worship today. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.